principles all have in common. Man, I'm not seeing a whole lot, right? Uh, that would be, uh, think about the different careers they have. Dave Ramsey's on the radio and telling people to like get out of debt and cut their credit cards up. And you've got Warren Buffett, who's this you know investment guru who can kind of read the tea leaves on the stock market. And then you've got Manson, who's you know, committing murders and getting people to go commit murders for him. Anybody think they know what the answer might be, that what they have in common? Oh, good, you're going to learn something today. Um, here's all three of these individuals credit a book, a certain book with helping them be able to be successful in their chosen uh, careers, if you will. All three of these individuals credit Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People with teaching them how to influence other people. That's kind of surprising, isn't it? Um, a book that was published in 1936, still a bestseller. You, you can see it. You know, if you go to Books a Million, it'll be there. Uh, it's sold tens of millions of copies. And uh, I've not actually read it, but from what I know of it, it gives sort of universal principles to help you build relationships with people, be able to influence people. Things as common as like, hey, use people's names and listen to people and hear their concerns. A, a lot of good practical advice that is in there. Admit when you're wrong. Show concern and care for other people. And you'll be able to gain influence. But the simple fact that uh, people as diverse as Dave Ramsey, who I would say helps a lot of people, um, and, and Charles Manson, who does not or did not, uh, shows you that influence is not a sort of just automatically good thing, right? Influence can be used for good, and influence can be used for ill. The same, same, the same tactics of influence could be used to help people get out of debt, and it could also use you to convince other people to go kill people that you don't like. Uh, influence is kind of like a sharp kitchen knife. The same knife that could be used to make a delicious meal that sustains, li sustains life could also be used to slice your finger. Uh, now, the, now, the reality is all of us have influence of some kind. Uh, some have influence in a larger sphere. Some have a, influence in a smaller sphere. And here's the thing as well. All of us are after influence. Some of you will be like, oh, no, I don't really want to be seen and noticed. But, hey, you do want influence in your friends or in your family. We want influence in certain areas. We all want it, and we all have it in certain ways. For example, you want your opinion to be respected at work. Nobody's like, yeah, I, I, I want to have opinions, but I don't care if anybody respects it or not. Like, no, we want, we want our opinion to be respected at work. We want the ideas that we put forward to be heard and maybe even to carry sway with people. We want the beliefs that we have or the values we hold to be to be believed and held by, by other people uh, in, in your marriage. Uh, you, know, you, you, you want your husband to hear what you're saying and even to take it into consideration and not just go do his own thing and vice versa, right? You, you want that kind of influence with your spouse. You want your opinion that you put on Facebook to be get some likes and to get some shares, otherwise you wouldn't be putting it out there. You want your, your vote to count. You want your side to win. You want your voice to be heard. The matter of fact, the fact is that we all want to have influence. We all desire to have influence, and we all have it to some degree. So the question is not whether or not do you have influence. The question is what kind of influence do you have, and how are you stewarding the influence that you have? We get to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. I think the word that we could use to summarize this is the word influence. Jesus has been talking to his disciples saying, here's the kinds of people you need to be going through the Beatitudes. So we pick up now in verse 13, he says this. Actually, let's pick up in verse 10 because verse 10 is a bridge that gets you over the river from the Beatitudes to the section about being salt and light. So Matthew 5, beginning in verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye. Notice the transition from blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they, to blessed are ye. He's addressing them directly now. When men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor... Wherewith shall I be salted? It's thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works 
and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Jesus is using these everyday analogies of salt and light to make really one single point, to say to his disciples, remember he's seeing the multitudes, the disciples have come to him, and then he's saying he's laying out these beatitudes, saying these are the qualities that mark those who live the good life. These are the qualities who mark those who are citizens of the kingdom. And he's saying, now those of you who are marked by those, those attributes, by those characteristics, he says, your salt, your light, you have influence. You are the God-ordained influence on the earth, in the world. He calls his people to be people of influence. Okay, if you're here today and you're, you're a Christian, God calls you to be a person of influence. To have an influence on this world, to have an influence on this nation, to have an influence on this culture, to have an influence for righteousness. But the influence he's talking about is not the influence of the worldly variety. It's not a be nice to people so you can manipulate them to do what you want. No, it is a, it is a countercultural sort of upside-down kingdom kind of influence. It's an influence that's not about political power. It's an influence that's not about cultural prestige. It's not about social popularity. But it's simply the ordinary people of God being everyday salt and everyday light. Again, the fact he uses ordinary images, he doesn't come along and, and take an analogy to be, be like stars shining in the firmament. He says, no, be salt, be light. Something you use every day. This is an ordinary, everyday influence. It's an influence that's not about pointing people to us and getting our agenda, but it's an influence that verse 16 says the, the ultimate aim of this influence is not to make society better, but is for people to know and to glorify God. That's what the ultimate end is. It's personal. It's an influence that is an influence for and with the gospel. So here's the point of what Jesus is saying. He's saying to you and to me, we must, we must, I must personalize it. We must be an influence in a decaying and a dark world with the gospel. After all, the image of salt, salt, the main idea of salt in the ancient world is not just like, you know, some people be like, oh, man, they're really salty about that, and they means they're like angry about it. That's not the image. The idea of salt in the ancient world is the idea of being a preservative, right? That, that's what's being assumed. That's the main function of salt in Jesus' day. Uh, it's not like, go oh, salt the roads. Salt can do so many different things. There are thousands of uses of salt. But the main idea in the ancient world was a preservative, okay? No refrigeration uh, back then in that day. So you, you've got a bunch of meat you want to preserve. You're going to put salt in it. It's going to absorb the moisture. It's going to slow down the process of decay. So he says, you're the salt of the, salt of the earth. He's saying... The world is a decaying place. The microbes of sin are at work. Society is going to tend towards greater depravity. What we see before the flood uh, is what society all, always tends to, is throwing off restraint, ignoring the law of God. You can read Romans 1 and, and God giving societies over to what they desire, what they want. That is the trajectory without the restraining influence of God's people within a culture, within a society. The image of you're the light of the world, what does that assume about the world? It assumes that the world is a dark place. In spite of all of the enlightenment and knowledge that is there, the world is a morally and spiritually dark place. They don't have the ultimate light, which is Jesus. So in a dark and decaying world, we, I think we all recognize the world is the culture, society is a naturally decaying and depraved place. It is a naturally dark and darkening kind of place. What is God's answers? What is God's answer? It's you and me, ordinary Christians, having this influence. So we're just going to walk through this, um, talk about salt, talk about light. And I, I'm just summarizing these points with sort of a, a, some, some brief statements that will kind of unpack, hopefully kind of stick in your mind a little bit more. When we think about salt, here, here is the, the, the first truth I want us to understand, is you must not confuse sugar and salt. Okay, well, I'm not seeing sugar and salt. Okay, look, look back here in the, in the text, verse 13. The first word in verse 13 is ye. Ye are the salt of the earth. Uh, the, the way this is phrased in Greek is the idea of, of you and, and only you. There's not a plan B. It's not you and some other institutions. It's you and you only. In other words, uh, the salt that God has ordained is the, is the church. God's plan for a decaying society, God's plan for a depraved society is a pure and a holy church. They're saying you and you only. There is something that Christians and only Christians can do that cannot be done by anyone else. Um, 
you ever confuse sugar and salt before? You're coming along and you're, 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 you're like, man, I'm going to throw some sugar on this or throw some salt on this. Okay, I did this one time when I was traveling for, uh, for PCC. You, you know I love my coffee, right? Like, so here we are. We're off in Connecticut staying in this person's house. And uh, they, you know, graciously, like, here's the coffee pot, because I'm like, you don't want to talk to me if I don't get the coffee. They're like, here's the cream, here's the sugar. And so I'm up at, like, 6 in the morning coming to this dark house. I turn the coffee pot on. I make my cup of coffee. Like, angels are singing. It's, it's just glorious. I put my cream in the coffee, put a big old spoonful of sugar, and mix it in. And it's, like, the nastiest cup of coffee. I'm like, I don't know what they do up here in Connecticut, but this is nasty. So let me throw more sugar in. And it got worse. And uh, yeah, I think I did that two or three, okay, I hadn't had any coffee yet, so like, don't judge. Brain's not firing, things aren't, it took me a little while to realize, wait a second, that's not sugar. Um, or if you've gone the other way before, where you're like, man, I'm going to throw some good you know, salt on this steak, it's going to be great, and you throw a bunch of sugar. Like, how nasty would that be? Here's my point. When Jesus says, ye are the salt of the earth, he is saying, you and you only, a lookalike will not do the same thing. The only way to ultimately restrain and change a society is the preaching of the gospel. By the way, say, what, what is wrong with our society? It's easy to point fingers in a lot of places to say, well, it's Washington, D.C., it's Hollywood, California, it's the entertainment industry. Uh, no, the, you know what is ultimately wrong with our society? It's the human heart, right? What, what we see in our leaders, what we see in our cultural institutions, sometimes we assume in our society is just pure as the driven snow, and then there's this cabal of elites that are making it awful. No, 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 no. The human heart is already bent towards evil. Blaming, blaming the evil of our society on a group of people in Washington, D.C., or Hollywood, California, or a bunker under the Denver airport is like blaming brain cancer on the headache. I've got brain cancer because I have a headache. No, 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 no. That is a symptom, not a cause. And by the way, looking to politics to say, well, what this means is we all need to go out and do, do politics. That's how we're salt and light, um, is like prescribing a Tylenol for that brain tumor. It's expecting sugar to fulfill the function of salt. It's expecting an institution, government, to do something God never intended for it to do, right? Government's not there to sort of take an unrighteous society and make it righteous. Rather, it's there to restrain evil in a very limited kind of way, but not to do the job of the church, so my point, my point here is we have a calling that God has given to us to address not just the symptoms of what's wrong in society, but the actual cause, which is, a, which is men's hearts being in rebellion against God. And the only way that can be done is through the gospel. Our mission is not to make Mobile, Alabama merely a better place to go to hell from. Right? Our mission is to rescue sinners from hell and from sin. Also, I want to add something else here. Okay, I read verses 10 to 12 on purpose. The Who's the ye? Sometimes here's what happens when we, when we go through a passage of Scripture, we outline it, like, okay, here's the Beatitudes. Okay, now we turn the page, and now we're going to talk about being salt and light as if there's no connection. The ye in verse, 10, uh, verse 13 is the same ye he addressed in verse 11. Like, why did he switch? You notice the Beatitudes are a third person, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. And then he suddenly says, now, blessed are you. It's because we're, we're, we're transitioning. The verses 11 and 12 are like a bridge that kind of take you over the river from one side to the other. The point is this. How do we ultimately function as salt and light? Notice Jesus does not say first, you must be salt and light. He says you are salt and light, right? It's something that you are before it is something that you do. So in other words, verses 13, 15, and th 13 to 16 is a continuation that is flowing out of what he said in the Beatitudes. How do you be salt and light? You be the kind of person that is described in verses 1 to 12. How, how, how do we be salt and light in this world? It's not primarily something that we do. It's not primarily about activism. It's not primarily about mobilization or protesting. It, it might have that as an effect, but it is first and foremost about being the kind of person that the Sermon on the Mount calls us to be. Not so much something that we do, but something that we are. Now think about how different this is in the world, thinks of the way the world thinks about influence. The world will say real influence is having like the biggest, greatest number of followers on Twitter, and then you can speak and everybody listens. Or real influence of being able to give a speech and you fill a stadium, that's influence. Or real influence is, is having your fingers on the level, levers of power so I can, I can you know, issue the orders that I want and get people to do what I want. 
Jesus is like, it's not that at all. He says, you want to be a person of influence? As he, he looks out over an audience of Galilean farmers. He's got an audience of, of peasants, of fishermen, tax collectors. And he's looking at these people who have zero zippo political power, zero zip, zippo cultural cachet, people who have zero zippo political or, or, or social popularity. He says, you are the salt of the earth. How? By being someone who looks like the Beatitudes. That is a radically different way of thinking about influence. The person with real influence is not the person who gets up and brags about their attainment. Look at how wealthy and powerful I am. No, the person of influence is the one who says, I'm a spiritual beggar. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The person of influence is not the one who is up there and is angry at the sins of others, but the one who is set, blessed are those who mourn, the one who sees their own sin and is repented before God. That's the person of influence. The person of influence is not the one who says, I want to have world domination and great power, but blessed are the meek, the one who surrenders their rights, the one who refuses to throw their weight around. The person of influence is not the one who is looking for some golden age ahead or looking back to, to some past epoch, but the one who is hungering and thirsting for what? Righteousness. That's the person of influence. The person of influence is not the one who's marked by callous cruelty and will just say it to people's faces whether or not they like it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's not the person who emphasizes external attainment or looks good on the outside. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's the person who is salt and light. It's not the person who goes and starts fights and has arguments and calls names peacemaker. And it's not the one who is simply seeking, I want a culture where I'm going to be comfortable and where I'm going to fit in and where everybody's going to like me. It's not getting everybody to like you. It's blessed are the persecuted. Now, that, that just goes counter to everything we would naturally think, well, like, okay, we need to be salt and light. So that means we need to have the strategy for like taking over the country and the seven mountains of power. Jesus is like, throw all that out the window. If you want influence, be this kind of person. Influence flows out of character. Before you can have influence with other people, you need to be the right kind of person. Without beatitude-like, Christ-like character, we have zero credibility. If I want to speak to the issues of the day, and, and we should speak to the issues of the day. We want to have influence in our culture. We should have influence in our culture. But if we don't have the foundation of character, of beatitude-like character, who's going to listen to us? You almost wonder, you think about, like, what happened with marriage getting redefined in our country? There's a lot of Christians, and there were a lot of, yeah, 2008, California passed an amendment defining marriage as being between a man and a woman. You're like, wow, like, a lot of political organizations, like, what happened? Could it be that while the church was, was speaking out on one aspect of marriage, we were saying diddly squat about divorce? What we're saying... Gay marriage is a sin, and it's going to be defined this way, and so along. While there's a bunch of sexual scandal within the church, you don't have much credibility. You don't have much credibility when you are denouncing a different version of a sin in the culture that you are tolerating within the church. We sought to have political influence without having Christ-like character first. And the world's not going to be swayed by that. That's not going to have influence on people around us. Consistent Christian character is the way to real influence Character gives us credibility, and credibility is what gives us opportunity. Think about how did Christians in past ages in the, in the Roman Empire see, see to it that slavery was abolished? How was it that Christians in ancient Rome were able to have such an influence on a pagan culture that the entire moral system was subverted? It didn't start off, you read the book of Acts, you don't see the apostles being like, all right, guys, so we're all going to write letters to the senators in Rome and I'm going to try to run for proconsul, and we're going to get in there, and we're going to impose it from the top down. No, it was a bottom-up. They, they turned the world upside down by being faithful Christians and preaching the gospel. And the world has never been the same as a result. How was it that the, the, the gladiatorial games were outlawed? It was the influence of Christianity, consistent Christian character, earning credibility, and changing the world. How was slavery abolished in the Western world? Again, it was a result of John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield preaching the gospel and so many people being converted, they saw the implications of the gospel saying, 
Listen, if I'm a sinner who needs to be saved, people of a different ethnicity are in the same place. We're equal before God. Therefore, slavery is a moral evil. The same could be said with segregation being ended. It wasn't first and foremost about let's try to have power, but first and foremost, let's have influence through consistent Christian character being the conscience of the culture. All right, a lot of time on that first point because this, this is so foundational. Being salt and light, beloved, is who we are, and first and foremost, it is about character. It's about character. Do you have the kind of character that is referred to in Matthew 5, 3 to 12? Does that define you? Because if it doesn't, you're not going to have much effect as being salt. If it doesn't, you're going to start looking to other people to do this for you. Well, well, let's try this strategy here, or this pragmatism, or this compromise, and we're going to try to get sugar to do the job of salt. But there's a second truth here. Ye are the salt, notice these next few words, of the earth. Um, this is not, okay, this is not high-level chemistry here. Um, try, try to track this, a really, really profound thought. If the salt stays in the salt shaker and doesn't get put in the meal, it's not going to do any good. I know, crazy radical stuff, right? Sodium chloride it doesn't do any good if it's not, comes into contact with what it needs to come into contact with. Don't stay in the salt shaker. Ye are the salt of the earth. So imagine for a second you've, you've cooked dinner. You go home today, you've got steak you cooked out on the grill. You've got a baked potato. You've got some green beans. Um, but nothing's been seasoned yet. I'll be honest, to me there are a few things more bland than a baked, baked potato without salt on it. I'm just like, man, I might as well be eating cardboard, right? This is, this is great. Um, so you grab the salt shaker and you tip it upside down. But as happens down here with all the humidity, all the salt has clumped into like a rock. Now what do you got? You got to like bang that thing on the table, maybe even like shatter your, your, your salt shaker to break it up a little bit to get it unclumped so it can be spread out. I think too often we as Christians want to clump together in the salt shaker, right? We want to, I'm going to hang out with other Christians and we're going to be in a Christian little league and a, a Christian this and a Christian this and a Christian this and we're only going to hang out with other Christians so we don't have to, to get out into the world. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Get out of the salt shaker and into the meal. Jesus' idea here is that our influence is to be scattered throughout society. Now, let me break this down in a couple of ways. One of them is to think about Christians being scattered throughout every sphere of a society, every part of it. When you get to the new, later on in the New Testament, like the end of Ephesians and Colossians, Paul will give like, a, it's called a household code, where he'll say, okay, Christians, uh, if you're a wife, here's how you're supposed to live. If you're a husband, here's how you're supposed to live. If you're a servant, here's how you are to live. If you're a, a master, here's how you're supposed to live. In other words, there are unique callings that each of us have in the unique spheres that we are in. And I think it would be God's will for us to, as Christians, take that salt influence with us into every sphere of life. We need Christians who are going to be scattered throughout every profession and calling in our world. Christians who are going to be in finance. Christians who are going to be in politics. Be salt and light there. Christians who are going to be in carpentry. Christians who are going to be in art. Christians who are going to be in firefighting. Christians who are going to be involved in education. Christians who are going to be involved in welding. Christians who are going to be involved in fixing computers. Christians who are going to do philosophy. Christians who are going to be involved in nursing. Christians who are going to do research. Christians who are going to be involved in science. Christians who are going to be involved in, in creating music. Christians who are going to provide services to the, to, to the community. Christians who are going to be in the hospitality industry. Christians who are going to be doing linguistics and, and, and whatever the sphere, Christians being in them. Uh, sometimes I would hear this idea where we almost created a, a caste system within the, within the church to be like, okay, yeah, it's good for you Christians, I'll do this, but if you really want to be holy, you need to be a preacher or a missionary. By the way, I'm all in favor of being a preacher, right? Like, it's what I do. It's a great calling. I wouldn't want to do anything else. If you really want to make a difference for Jesus, you've got to do this. This is like, ah, oh, we have the, the preacher boys, and there's a lot of backslapping. Every Christian in every sphere, in every legitimate calling, is called to be an influence for Christ. Um, and there's this apocryphal quote from Martin Luther. It's apocryphal because no one's been able to run it down, but it captures his theology well. He says, okay, what does a Christian cobbler do? A cobbler, you know, makes shoes. He says, does he go around putting a cross on every pair of shoes he makes. No, he makes a good pair of shoes. So sometimes we think, well, if I'd be a Christian artist means I need to paint Bibles. So being a Christian artist means you do really good art. 
I'm going to be a Christian nurse. It means I have to witness to my patients. You might have that opportunity. It also means just be a really good nurse. We bring an excellence to what we're doing that is going to display. Uh, you're not working in the same way that other people are. You're motivated by something more than a paycheck. Because you're doing it for the, the master in heaven. But there's another sense in which we get out of the salt shaker. It's not just in every sphere of, of bringing a Christian influence, but it's also thinking about just the place where we're put. Uh, I've heard a statistic before that I don't know I could verify. I heard it from a missionary. It's, there's probably general truth to it that 95% of Christian ministries in the world are reaching 5% of the population. Think about like here in the United States, we have an embarrassment of riches of Christian ministries and radio programs and publications and books and churches and ministries and, and, and all these things, they're good. But then you go to another part of the world where you're like, here's a city of 20 million people and there's not a single church here. Like, if all the salt, you know, you're, you're making your, your meal, all your salt is on one corner of the steak, like, that's probably not going to be a great bite and the rest of it's not going to be a great bite either. One of the things we saw happen in the book of Acts, there's a persecution that comes along. Like, oh, how awful persecution. But then it says the, the, the people who believed were scattered everywhere speaking the gospel. It's a great thing for Christians not to clump together, but to scatter and to go where it is needed. Let me give you a couple of suggestions. One of the ways we can get out of the salt shaker, we need Christians in post-Christian places. Here's what I mean. Cities like Boston that one time were really influenced by Christianity but now aren't. We don't need Christians moving away from those places. We need Christians moving to those places. God wants Christians scattered generously in every place. Christians who are willing to say, you know what, I'm going to stay in this declining neighborhood because I want somebody here who's going to be a good neighbor and is going to love this community. Christians who are going to stay in the inner city to say, I'm going to improve that rather than seeking my own comfort over gospel witness. What if we moved into places where the need was the greatest? Uh, what if you could take your job anywhere? You're like, okay, I could go do what I'm doing anywhere. I'm going to go where there's a strategic church plant going on. Like, how cool would that be? By the way, I know I'm taking a risk here because some of you might take this seriously and actually say, I'm going to transfer to Seattle for the sake of the gospel. Glory to God, right? I would happily lose people in my church if you're going strategically for the, the cause of Christ. You see, sometimes we, out of fear, like, man, if we go to those places, we might be corrupted by those places. Like, oh, I don't want to do that. We have forgotten that the cause of corruption is not from without me, but is from within me. The greatest danger to my soul is not the culture around me, but sin within me, no matter where you live. We also need people who are going to go to pre-Christian places. So post-Christian, the gospel was once there, but has, has lost favor. Pre-Christian places are places that have not even been touched with the gospel. You go to regions of India. India is the most populous place in the world today. It's surpassed China. They had like their one-child policy. China's population is actually declining, and now they're kind of freaking out about it. Like maybe be fruitful and multiply was a good idea. But India is the, now the largest country in the world. And there's hundreds of ethnic groups and languages and, and even religious expressions that are there. Like, man, we need an army of people who are like, we're going to go to India even though there are challenges, even though, you know, legally you have to, 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 to be very creative to get the gospel in. Missionaries are going to go to places like that. Missionaries are going to say, here's this tribe in Papua New Guinea that doesn't have the, the Bible in their language, and I'm going to go give 10 years of my life to become an expert in linguistics so I can go learn that language and translate the Bible into their tongue. We need people who are willing to say, I'm going to lay my life down so that Christ can be named in a place where he is not yet named. In other words, I'm going to say, my comfort takes second, second place. It is in the backseat. God's glory and the mission to which he has called me. You are the salt. He's not just saying, hey, some Christians who feel called to this. No, all Christians are to be salt and light. Or third place is in the culturally Christian places. That's us. We're living in a city that, yeah, there, I looked up the other day, there's like 200-something Baptist churches in Mobile. Many of them, most of them perhaps, are preaching the gospel. Glory to God for that. I am thankful for other churches. I don't think we need fewer churches in our city. not saying that at all. But it can also lull us into a complacency where you think, well, everyone here already knows Jesus. And people know the right answers to give you. Say, oh, yeah, I've trusted Jesus. And it can give you just, you can kind of let the current of culture take you down the river and you feel like, yep, I'm going along. The, the, the current here is pulling me in the right direction. But we need Christians who are going to be a faithful witness right here in this place. 
Um, yeah, frankly, we're not going to, if we're not getting out of the salt shaker right here in Mobile, Alabama, it doesn't make sense to go move to Tacoma, Washington. Um, we need to get out of the salt shaker into the world. Like, get to know the people on your street. Start there. Get to know the person in the cubicle behind you that you've never really talked to at work. Build friendships with people who are not Christians. Like, but they don't share my worldview. Yeah, that's, that's why we need to build these friendships. And I don't mean build the friendships and then just like argue about stuff. But build a genuine friendship shared, uh, based on who they are as a person. You can get creative. Um, I know a guy who took a job as a substitute teacher in a really bad school. Because there's no one there who's going to love those kids. You could volunteer for a local charity. You could shop at the same place at the same time every week so you see the same cashier every week. And you're like, I'm going to be the person who's going to show kindness to them and begin to build a relationship with them. You say, okay, I can work, I can work remotely. Work in the same coffee shop every week. So you're like, I get to know that barista at that place and I can begin to have that influence. You can go coach a team. And I don't mean like, well, I'm going to go coach a Christian team. Just go coach a team where you're going to run into people who don't know Jesus. You can get involved in community groups, whatever the case may be. I mean, like, the sky's the limit here for getting out of the salt shaker. The, the point is not all the grains of salt need to go to the same place in the same way, but to be generously spread throughout the meal. Let's just be honest. We're not going to be salt and light from the comfort of the salt shaker, from the comfort of the four walls of this building or of our homes. We're not going to be Salt and light from the safety of the keyboard. That'd be like, well, I'm just yeah, I'm gonna post something on Facebook. Well, that's great. Like we need people saying gospel things online. But getting out there. So how can you do this? How can you do maybe that's a, a thing you ask God, what how do you want me to do this with the unique giftings that I have? Okay, so um, someone like me being salt and light is not gonna happen by joining a bowling league or an art club, because I stink at both of those, right? But some of you all might have gifting there. You're like, I have a, a way that I can do this in those areas. Like, what, what, what is in thine hand? That's what God asks of Moses. What, what's in your hand? What are you good at? Where, where do you have ways that you can get to know people? Use that as a way. I'm going to be salt and light right there. But there's a warning. We come back to the end of verse 13. Ye are the salt of the earth. Now, the largest part of the verse, Jesus devotes to this warning. But if the salt loses its flavor... Like, hey, that doesn't happen. Like, sodium chloride cannot just sort of on its own change its, you know, chemical structure. It's, it's not possible. Okay, salt could lose its flavor. It gets mixed in with, like, a bunch of other junk. But I think the point Jesus is making is, like, salt doesn't lose its flavor. It's just the nature of salt to be salty, just like it's the nature of water to be wet or fire to be hot. So if the salt were to lose its savor, if, if something absurd were to happen and you're not a flavor in the world, in other words, he's assuming... This is the normal thing is for Christians to, to have the salt-like influence in the world. Where shall it be salted? Okay, there's not a plan B here. There's not like a, hey, here's a new clever salt substitute. Um, like I get they have sugar substitutes and they all taste funny. Um, so there's not a salt substitute. It says, it's thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. You're not going to keep a big bag of salt in your, uh, you know, in your kitchen cupboard that's not actually salt, but it's just like ground-up chalk. Well, that's going in the trash can. When Christians are not living in a Christian kind of way, we rightly incur the scorn of the world, right? When, when people look at us and they're like, well, you're not living or speaking or you're just like me. You're going after the same stuff I'm going after and talking the same way and have the same goals. Trodden underfoot of men. Jesus is giving a warning. Don't lose your flavor. Be salt, but don't lose your flavor. Don't lose that savor. What is the unique flavor that we have? Let me break this down a little bit. What's the flavor that we, we have? The first part, I think, is, is the holiness of our lives. The holiness of our lives. So uh, Brandon read 1 Peter 2 for us. And, and he ta the text talks about, you are a holy people, right? You're, you're, you're not like the world. You are distinct from it. You, you are separated from this. And he says, go to war against the lusts that, that wage war on your soul. The flavor of a holy, a holy life. Few things do more harm to a Christian witness than unchristian behavior. Even people who are not Christians know Christians are supposed to be marked by love and by grace, by kindness. And when they see the opposite coming out of you, they're like, uh, that's not what you're supposed to be. They, oftentimes the world has a better sense for hypocrisy than we do in our own lives. 
You know, we're living in a world that is angry, that is greedy, that is arrogant, that is impure, that is sexualized, that is pornified. What if instead we were marked by genuine love? What if instead we were marked by genuine joy in a, in a world that's marked by kind of misery and anger? What if we were marked by peace in a world of turmoil? What if we were marked by patience in a world where everybody's constantly in a hurry and mad at each other? What if we were marked by goodness? Where people, you know, like, you ever say to someone like, that person, just, they're just a good person. Like, you're not saying morally they're right with God, but just, man, they're, they're great to be around. What if we were marked by faithfulness? What if we were marked by gentleness? What if we were marked by self-control? Man, that would be, that would be powerful. Because those aren't the things that people naturally go to. They're the fruit of the Spirit. If you want to read that list, it's in Galatians 5.22. It's the working of the Spirit in our lives. We talk about a holy life as being what God intends us to be, as being separated unto Him, as being like God. But there's another way that we have flavor. Uh, go with me over to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul writes this, he says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without. So he's okay, towards the, the lost world, be really wise and tactful and smart about how you live. He's, not, he's saying, don't, don't come charging into a conversation like a bull in a china shop, just dropping truth grenades and then going on, but to, to do it in wisdom. Redeeming the time, taking advantage of every opportunity. Every encounter you have with someone is an opportunity to have some kind of influence on them. The influence may be, well, that guy doesn't care about me, or he was too busy to talk to me. Whatever, there's an opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, generosity, giving people the benefit of the doubt. Always with grace, seasoned with salt. Now, we've not talked about this much in this message, but one of the other things salt obviously does is it adds flavor. It makes the meal taste better. It makes that baked potato actually taste palatable. That you may know how you ought to answer every man. So another way we have a unique flavor is by the holiness of our lives, but it's also by our winsome words. We should be winsome. When we, when we speak, people should be like, I don't know if I agree with you, but I kind of want to. Because the way, you're, you're, the way you're speaking to me with such love and kindness makes me want to do that wants me to believe that. The same salt that preserves the meat also flavors the meal. Listen, beloved, if we are simply spewing condemnation and anger towards the sins of the world, we can rightly say they're sins, they're an affront to God. But if we're simply spewing condemnation and scorn and disdain towards those who don't know Jesus, you're probably not going to win anyone. Uh, nobody yet that I know of was badgered into the kingdom of God or was condemned or guilt-tripped into becoming a Christian. And when we witness, we need to lay the law of God before people and help people see their lost condition before God. But that's different than just, well, I am going to just attack and condemn and beat you over the head with a, with a, with a Bible verse. Um, if our primary posture towards the lost is one of anger and antagonism, why would you expect someone to be attracted to Christ? Right, so I'm not at all suggesting compromise on the truth. But, beloved, kindness is not compromise. Somewhere along the line, we thought that if we are kind towards people who hate God, we're sort of giving them, giving them leeway to hate God. No, kindness is Christ-likeness. By the way, kindness is not a strategy. People are like, well, it used to work years ago to be, show kindness and love towards the lost, but now we need to be really hard-hitting and just really let them have it because that's what they need. Kindness is not a strategy. It's not a, we use kindness because it works. We're kind because we're called to be kind. We're kind because it's what Jesus is, winsome words. If we deliberately use language that we know, using this phrase, using this language is going to just cause anger and no one's going to hear anything else I say, don't use it. You're like, well, it's true. Okay, well, not everything that is true has to be said, right? We, we tell our kids that. Like, yes, it might be true that you think so-and-so needs to lose a few pounds, or, but you don't go and say that. That's not helpful. That's not, there's this tact, right? There's this wisdom. We just go in there and say everything that's true about, yes, it is true that you are going to hell and if you don't turn to Jesus, but is that what you need to lead in the conversation? Uh, so don't lose your flavor. You can lose your flavor, lose your opportunity by a lack of wisdom and winsomeness. But I think the most important part of our flavor is the gospel, the glorious gospel of Jesus. Um, 
There is a sense in which being salt is about having an influence on the laws and on the elections and on the overall direction of a country and a society. By all means, we should vote. By all means, Christians should take their values with them into the voting box, into the, into the, into the polling place. But ultimately, the way that we, we, we see the world change is through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. There are a million good things that you as an individual Christian should, can, may do. Okay, not every Christian has to go coach a little league team, right? Um, there, there may be a way that you and your small corner can be salt and light that not everyone else is called to do. There is one thing that the church of Jesus Christ must do, and that is make disciples. That's it. The mission of the church is not every good thing that Christians can and may do. Okay, so the mission of the church is not husbands love your wives. That's something that you as an individual Christian are called to. The mission of the church is not go and endorse candidates and win elections. The mission of the church is make disciples. Those may be other things that Christians can do as individuals, perhaps should do. But what the church must do is make disciples, is preach the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes. Why? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I would rather preach the gospel and never say a word about some other topics that may be important than to get sidetracked on those other things. Preaching the gospel means this. It means declaring the bad news that people are lost and need a Savior. Right? There, there, there's no two ways about that. That may be offense and offense to the world. Like, well, how does that square with what we just said about winsome words? Okay, there's relationship you're building, the way you say it. But at some point, you speak the gospel clearly that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yes, the thing you may have chosen as your identity very well may be a sin. We can't pull punches on that. But we declare clearly man's lost condition. We declare, we declare clearly the finished work of Jesus Christ that Jesus died for sinners and was buried and rose again. He died in your place, taking your punishment, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating hell, defeating guilt. And then we must call people to repent and believe. We've got to be clear about sin. We've got to be clear about God's glory. So if you turn from your sin, you can receive this gift of eternal life. I just want to stop right here. You may be sitting here in this room this morning being like, my conscience has been torturing me. I... I've been wrestling with this question, am I right with God? Like, there's so much guilt and I don't know how to deal with it, and I've tried so many different things to deal with it. Turn to Christ. Come to Jesus in faith and take him at his word and trust in him alone. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, beloved, if we want to be salt and light, yes, we have a holy life, and we have to have winsome words. But ultimately, those winsome words are just empty if they don't have the gospel carried along on them. It's like an arrow that you shoot. If there, there's not a tip on the arrow, it's not going to do any good. If the gospel is not being conveyed by our lives and by our words, we may do a lot of good things in the society, but we're not ultimately being salt and light. Let's see how I'm doing on time. Have I run out of time already on this? Uh, we've got a little bit of time to just dip our toes into, into light. Back to Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it on a, under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. When we make, Jesus is giving us two analogies that are kind of making the same point. Salt has this restraining, preserving influence. Light, maybe, if we want to say a distinction between the point of what Jesus is making, salt is sort of more the, the you're a Christian, you're living your life, and you have just this influence sort of passively by the way you live your life. Light is sort of more active, right? The more active influence you have in, in, in relationships. If we think about light, ye are the light of the world, same structure, beatitude-defined, Christ-like Christians. Okay, that's you. He says, you are the light of the world. There's not a, there's not a plan B. The call here is for us to, 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 to keep the light on. I remember Motel 6 used to have that slogan, maybe still, we, we leave the light on for you. Sometimes you go into a Motel 6 room, you're like, I wish they hadn't, you know, like. Um, but we, we leave the light on for you. Jesus is saying, you as Christians, you're, you're the light of the world. You're called to, 
to, to, to be this light, to display the, the majesty and glory of Jesus. Now, John 8, verse 12, Jesus makes this statement, I am the light of the world. Uh, very clear in John's gospel, Jesus is saying, I am the light, I am the ultimate declaration and expression of all that God is. So how can he say on one hand, I am the light of the world, and then say to us as Christians, you are the light of the world. Here's what's going on. He is commissioning them to be his representatives. Christ dwells in each of us, and so we have his light within us, his, his presence, his glory. But we are called to be, as, as it were, representatives of Jesus. So as you go out of this place today, right, you're, you're going as, yes, I'm going as Sam Sinclair bearing my name, but you are also going as a representative of Jesus. So you're, you know, you're driving down the road and you see a, a UPS driver. He's got the UPS you know, uniform on. UPS is on the side of his truck. He's delivering packages. And he's going 86 miles an hour down three-notch road, cutting people off, running people into the ditch. You don't just think, well, that guy's a bad driver. You're also calling the number on the back of his truck, if you can catch it, to say, UPS, this guy's really representing you poorly. Like when you put the uniform on, when you have the label on the side of your vehicle, what you do not only reflects on you, but on the one who sent you. Okay, as Christians, just even the word Christian is a little, a little Christ, we, as the light of the world, we are representing Jesus. To change the analogy, you are an ambassador. Uh, so when an ambassador goes to another country, they're standing as the official representative of the United States of America. Like what they do is to reflect and to represent those interests. They're not there to be like, hey, I've got my own kind of agenda here on the side. So maybe, you know, they're being sent, the official policy is, hey, we want to cultivate good relations with the country of New Zealand. And he's coming along being like, man, how can I sabotage this? I've got my own agenda going on. That, that's not what an ambassador does. As we go out into the world, it is not about your agenda or my agenda. You sit there, so I want to see this, I want to see this. Okay, what does Jesus want? Because we're here ultimately to represent him and not to represent ourselves. Think of the implications of this in your marriage. The most important thing is not what you want. What does Jesus want, and how can I represent his interests in this relationship? In the lives of your children, you're not there to be, what do I want? Oh, I want them to stop crying and to be happy. Okay, well, what does Jesus want in their lives? As you interact with your neighbors, it's not, what do I want? I want to just be left alone and be able to close the door and not talk to anyone. Okay, well, what does Jesus want? That's what it means to say, he says, you're the light of the world. I'm the light of the world, Jesus says. And he says, you're the light of the world, which means we are to carry on his interests. We're simply the candle, but he is the light. We're sort of the light socket, and he is the light bulb and the energy flowing through the wire. We're here to lift him up. But there's another sense in which we keep the light on, and it's not just our lives, but it is our lips. It's our words. Philippians 2 says that we are to shine as lights in the darkness, holding forth the word of life. This is where the more active part of it is. The way that we are light, one of the ways we represent Jesus is by revealing Jesus is by talking about Jesus, is by declaring Jesus to the world, speaking the gospel. N notice how the text progresses. It uses first the illustration of a city that is set on the hill. That represents kind of our corporate. There's something about when we gather together as, as Christians in the church, we all together are speaking the gospel. We're singing it together, we're hearing it together, we're representing it together. There's something about us collectively as a city on a hill, so to speak. By the way, that's got nothing to do with the United States of America, great speeches, not accepting. It's about the church, it's about Christians, with the light of Christ. We are the city on the hill that cannot be hid. When we together bring all of our lights together, there's something that happens. A city is more than just the collection of the individuals. It gets its own culture, its own flavor. It is a, it's an entity in and of itself. The corporate gathering of the church is a witness and a testimony to this world. But then he goes to this more individual illustration. So you can't hide a city on a hill. Neither do men light a candle or put it on a bushel. The individual. We're representing Jesus. We're revealing Jesus corporately as a church when we come and we testify to the gospel together. And then as individuals, as you go out, and scatter throughout the community. Uh, we can't just say, you know, um, I in my small corner and you in yours. No, it is, this is in the plural. Um, by the way, just a little tip, when you run into you or ye in the King James, that's plural. Ye are the light of the world. It's all y'all are the light of the world. It's kind of a together kind of concept. It's not just a, you as an individual, I'm going to go be the light in the darkness. No, it is we and us are to be the light. But here's a second truth. Jesus says, don't cover that light. Okay, you don't light a candle, put it under a basket. Uh, don't be scared of the dark. Don't let fear 
cover that light that you were called to be. Now, the, the picture here in verse 15, we think of a candle like a wax candle with a wick sticking out of it on a silver kind of candlestick up on the mantle. The idea here is more of a, a terracotta uh, clay oil lamp that would have a place you put the oil and then a little wick sticking out. Um, and then they would have little shelves on the, on, on the wall of their house. So you imagine you're in a one-room house. One little oil lamp would provide a lot of light to the house. So it's okay. You're not, you don't go to all the trouble of getting oil, putting it into the lamp, making sure the wick is properly trimmed, finding some way to get fire because there's no, like, you know, electric fire lighters. There's no, like, cigarette lighters to start your candle. You go to the trouble of getting the lamp ready and, and lighting it, and then it's all ready to go, and it's dark, and, it, and then you go and put it under a basket somewhere. Like, nobody does that. I just recently put some new lights in our house, uh, a cool-looking pendant light above the peninsula in the kitchen. Uh, it was on sale at Lowe's. It was awesome. But imagine doing all the trouble of, like, you find out where the stud is, and you drill a hole up there in the ceiling, and you put in your little box and you, you take the thing out and figure out all the instructions, and you, you, you run all the wires up and all your wire nuts, and everything is put there, and you install the light, and you say, honey, look at the light I installed. She says, that's awesome. Uh, just so you know, we're never going to turn it on. Right? You'd be like, what? wait, I did, I did all that trouble, and I'm no good at electricity, and I ran all that Romex and did all this stuff, and like, I was pretty pleased with myself, and we're never going to turn it on? Like, that's absurd, right? You would never install a light for the purpose of never turning it on. Jesus is saying it is absurd for Christians to be the light of the world and then to let fear, whatever the case may be, whatever, fear of persecution, cover that light. Light is meant to be seen. It is not meant to be covered. Think of it all the ways we do this. You're like, I can't. Man, there's a wide open door in this conversation to walk through it with the gospel. I'm not a big fan in conversations of just like, we're talking about the weather and now Boom, I'm just going to hit you with Jesus. But man, there are so many places where the gospel can have an entrance. Someone is talking about the, the problems and the brokenness in their life. Anywhere where problems and brokenness are being discussed, the gospel is the answer and can naturally weave into that. Not just a, now I'm going to recite to you the Romans road, but in a natural way that someone's talking to you about the brokenness in their family or the way that their, their son is struggling with an addiction or the way their marriage is suffering. Someone opens up to you in that way. Man, that is not, we're talking about the effects of sin. Guess what? The gospel deals with that. People are having a discussion about what's happening culturally in our world, and they're like, man, look at the, the moral decay. Turn the conversation away from, like, and let's talk now about politics to, you know, the answer to that is the gospel. Um, there, there's so many ways to do this. So you're, you're coming along in this conversation. You're like, I have this opening. The Spirit of God is sort of like knocking on your head, being like, do it, do it, do it. And you're like, ah, oh, man, no. I don't know what to say. Like, um, they may think I'm a weirdo. Like, uh, okay, these are the uh, maybe you don't have these conversations. These are the conversations that go on in my head. I don't want to offend them. I don't know if they know me well enough. This may come across poorly. We have all of these excuses where we're like, the light. I'm keeping the basket on top of it so nobody sees it. We fear rejection. We fear the sometimes the corruption of like, oh, I don't want to get too close to them. They make. Uh, uh, we fear confrontation. The gospel is by nature confrontational, confronting people with sin and with Jesus and their need for him. And sometimes, this comes back to the point of being scared of the dark. We don't want to shine our light in the darkness because we are scared of the dark. We're scared of the darkness. We're, just, we're scared of the decay. We, we treat darkness as if it's something that is unusual. I've heard people say things like this to me as a new parent. Boy, I wouldn't want to raise my kids in this world today. Or... Man, it wasn't like this back when I was a kid. Um, here's the news flash. The world was dark back when you were a kid as well. Right? Darkness manifests itself in different ways. There's no sense. The Bible does not give us a sense that there's these epochs of light, and then finally in the year 2023, the, the, the lights went out. It's always been dark. Darkness is not new. We should expect it. We shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't be afraid of it. You know what you do if you're the one with the flashlight and it's dark? You shine your light, right? You, 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 you let the light so shine before men. And here's the good news. You know, when you're out there in a dark night, um, it's far less scary when you have a flashlight and you turn the thing on. Remember back when you were a kid, it's way less scary if you can put your hand in dad's hand. Yes, the, yes, there is a fear of the darkness, but it's not as scary when you have the light of the presence of Christ and when you have the presence of your loving father there to be like, Okay, it's dark and it's scary, and I don't know which way the trail is to lead me home. And remember this. We, we can expect the dark night, but daybreak is coming. 
right? It may be really, really dark right now, and it may stay, it is going to stay really, really dark, but one day the sun will rise. One day Jesus will return, and that's when the light will shine throughout the world. That is, that is the only time in history where there's going to be a perfect society and a perfect culture when King Jesus reigns and rules over everything. So if we're looking at the darkness being like, oh, this is awful, understand it's always been bad, but understand one day Jesus will come and his glory will shine. So keep shining. We sang that song, Christ, our hope in life and death. Does your life exude, and your attitude towards what's happening in our world, does it exude pessimism and fear and anger? Or do people be like, man, that person is so hopeful. <laughs> How do they have so much hope? How are they so positive and optimistic when I'm watching, I'm reading the same news that they're, they're reading, and, and I'm not optimistic? How do they have so much hope? Our hope is not that, yep, we're going to just, things are just going to get better and better. No, we know that's not true. Our hope is that Jesus reigns and that he is saving sinners. Let's come into this final verse. Let your light so shine before men. Here's the idea is let your light shine in this kind of way. Here it is. Let it shine in a way that, number one, people see it. And let it shine in in such a way that people see the light and therefore glorify God. I'm going to shine the light, but hopefully nobody sees it. No, he says, let your light shine in a manner that can be seen and can be visible. Shine it publicly. This is the only command we have here, right? He said, you are the light. And then he says, now let the light shine. He's, calling, he's not calling us to do something that's different than what we are. He's rather saying, live in a way that is consistent with who you are. Know your identity, your light, and now live like it. What does light do? Light shines. Sometimes we act as if um, you know, witnessing is like, oh, yeah, I know I'm a Christian, but I better do it. But it kind of goes against the grain of everything that I am. Jesus is saying, no, this is actually the way that the river flows. This is going with the grain. This is consistent with what Jesus has called you to be. It says, do it before the men. Do it, before, do it in a way that is visible and it is public. Our lives are on display and are meant to be seen. This is why the argument people make is like, hey, we don't mind if you have your faith. It's just got to be private and personal. You better not bring that into sort of discussions of public theology or, or, or public morality. No, no, no. Our faith pervades every area of our lives. You can't just say, well, when, I, you know, when I'm out in public, I can't really display it. No, this is who I am. The purpose here is that people would see our good works. According to Titus 2, good works decorate the gospel. Our good works are like an advertisement for the gospel. You ever see like a really lousy advertisement for an awesome product? Um, Sometimes our lives can be a really lousy advertisement for a great product. The gospel. Uh, Now, when you get a good advertisement for a bad product, we call that a scam. When you get a bad advertisement for a great product, we call that bad marketing. Our lives sometimes can be really terrible marketing. And the gospel is awesome. It's good news, and our lives should show that. Like, look at what it's done in my life. Good works announce and include the gospel. Some people pit good works and the gospel as if they're side by side. You realize one of the good works we're told to do is to tell people about Jesus, right? So do both. And the aim here is God's glory. Now, here's kind of the hang-up. In Matthew 6, Jesus will say, don't do your good works in order to be seen of men. Don't pray so people will see you. Don't fast so that people can see you. Yet here he's saying, do your good works so that people can see them. It's like, okay, did Jesus contradict himself? Did he forget, like, later on the sermon, what he said back in point one? Like, we're talking about two different things. There is a difference between our lives being visible publicly so people see God's glory and doing things with a performance mentality. The difference between a disciple and a Pharisee is this. The disciple lives consistently whether or not anyone is watching. The Pharisee is going along and he's like, oh, there's an audience. Let me pretend to be holy. Uh, they, they're, oh, there's an audience. Now I'm going to pray publicly, but they're never praying privately. Um, he says, live in such a way that people see your good works and then glorify you. No, 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 no. Glorify your Father which is in heaven. So that our lives will be kind of a mirror to be like, don't look at me, look at him. I put it this way. Don't seek the spotlight. Be the spotlight. Spotlight is a look at God, my good works, my life, my lips, my messages for people to see the glory and the majesty of God. Keep the main thing the main thing so that people would see, wow, he's truly good and glorious and I'm not, and I want him and they turn to him in faith. Let's talk about real influence. This is what real influence is all about. Real influence living a holy life and declaring a glorious gospel so people can see an awesome God. You see how this is so different than saying, I'm just going to offer the world what they already have with a little Jesus sprinkled on it. 
I'm going to just take the, the, the things they already believe and just be like, yeah, it could be a little better with Jesus. We don't offer the world a barely Christianized version of the same thing that they're already getting from their favorite talk show host or therapist or pundit. We've got something so much better. Something that transcends all of those categories. It doesn't fit in like a nice little box of, well, this is right wing or this is left wing. It doesn't fit in the little box of, well, this is sort of like, no, no, no. We offer to a needy world what they cannot find anywhere else. Here's what I'm calling you to do is to tell a better story than the one people are hearing. To present a version of the gospel that people hear and they're like, boy, I don't know if that's true or not, but I want it to be. Offer to a needy world where they cannot find anywhere else. To a world that is full of rampant sadness. Proclaim the true joy that is found in sins being forgiven. To a world that is racked with guilt. We're like, you turn to Jesus, your sins are forgiven. To a world that is exhausted by the impossible demands of an ever-changing morality. Things that were like, okay, five years ago, you used to be able to tell that joke, you can't now. Like, that's really exhausting to measure up to. To a world that's exhausted by that, we say, come to the one who says, I'll give you rest. To a world that is isolated and lonely, just rampant loneliness, we say, come to Christ, have a relationship with him, and join the family of God. To a world that's alienated from one another on all kinds of lines and polarization and all these things. Like, there's reconciliation in Jesus. That is so much better than anything the world offers. We've got to have that kind of posture. So do you have that? Do you know that? Do you believe that?